Welcome to all our listeners. And today it's my great pleasure to introduce my guest, Duncan Law, for today's podcast, which is about creating high performance organizations with high psychological health. Let me say a little bit about you, Duncan. Duncan is a consultant clinical psychologist with over 30 years experience working in applied psychology across all sorts of elite sporting environments. And that has included Premier League football, rugby, uh, Olympic sports and horse racing. But I guess home for you or your origins come very much from the NHS, social care, higher education. Whereas you and I have met and know each other as colleagues within the British rowing team and the Paralympic and Olympic programs where as I understand it, you provide systemic and clinical psychology whilst I'm a performance psychologist. So, you know, without further ado, you've got many more uh, credentials, qualifications, professorships, but uh, let me just sort of invite you to say hello, Duncan. I'm just interested in which particular bits of your work are you most passionate about? Uh, well, uh... Thank you, William, and um, uh, that, that, uh, very nice introduction. And uh, in terms of the question about what I'm most passionate about, um, I, that, that's always a difficult one because the, the short answer is all of it, <laughs> which um, is, it has the potential to be problematic because it, 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 it might seem that I'm doing lots of different things uh, and it's quite a sort of disparate portfolio of stuff that I'm involved with. But actually there is a thread that runs through all of it. And I guess it's the thread that runs through it all is the real, the bit that I'm really passionate about. And it is what you said in the introduction, which is about, I'm really interested in people within the context of their environment, uh, whether that's uh, a young person with a mental health difficulty uh, struggling in school or an elite athlete um, uh, wanting to uh, win a gold medal um, or if it's someone in an organisation, a business setting wanting to kind of be as uh, effective as they can. It's that, it's that uh, the, the, the application of really sound psychological principles to help understand the person within their context, within their environment, within their system, whatever we want to call it, in order for them to perform as well as they can. And I use perform in a very broad sense here. I'm not just talking about sort of athletic performance or business performance. It's about performance in the sense that people getting on with their lives as as well as they want to and as well as they feel able to that that's the bit that I'm really passionate about that that kind of that interplay between the person and the system that they're in and, and in in what you've just described you honed in very much on the individual how much does your work take you to focusing on whole organizational systems and teams as well as individuals uh, well it's both isn't it I mean it, systems are made up of individuals and uh, 
individuals work together to create systems. Um, so you can't, I don't think you can think about one without the other. Um, it's a sort of slightly old fashioned idea to think about uh, individuals not within the context of their environment. Um, mm. uh, so my work is, I, I'm always thinking about both and I'm always working at, at sort of, uh, you know, thinking about the individual level, but working with the system in order to think about how best to support individuals. So let's go back to these sort of core building blocks of this conversation. Uh, and I've got a fairly bold question for you, which is, mm. is it possible to have sustained high performance and high psychological health? Um, yes. <laughs> and in fact, I don't think you can have sustained performance without good psychological health. And, and I think it's the it's the word sustained that's the, the important word here. So. Uh, is it possible to have high performance without psychological health? Yes, it is. You, you can, you can, we know that there's, you know, there's a whole body of research which says, so if I were to ask you, William, to do uh, as many press ups as you could right now, I, I don't know how many, I don't know how many that would be, but you know, you would, if I said you've got gone really, really try your hardest, um, uh, you know, eventually you would not be able to do any more press ups. But if I introduced a sort of threat, so if I put a gun to your head and said, do some more press ups, even though you felt you'd done as many as you possibly could, we, you, you would do some more. But um, uh, you would, the, the impact of that high threat on your performance, so you would get a, arguably a better performance out of you. But the impact of that would be so damaging to you physically and psychologically that you wouldn't be able to do that again anytime soon. It, it would, you know, we, we kind of, we, you, we, we the, the, the problem with uh, performance that isn't supported within good psychologically safe and healthy environments is that it's, it's not sustainable. We get, we can, we can get performance, but it's not sustainable performance. People burn out physically and psychologically um, and that's not those kind of uh, performances are not helpful for the people that we're trying to uh, uh, to work with to in order to improve their performance and and neither are they help help uh, uh, helpful in the long run for the organizations who might want to see that peak performance in somebody so so as you talk about when psychological health is compromised. Let, let's just dive into that, you know, straight away. And I just wonder what, what patterns you might have observed about, and I'm assuming there are patterns. You may say, no, it's much more fragmented than that, when psychological integrity gets compromised. Mm. Um, yeah, I, it, it, there are patterns, but of course, as you know, as well as I do, it's always, very individual how people respond to to those kind of uh, uh, where environments where psychological safety is compromised. So there are certain things that we know people tend to do 
uh, in those kind of settings. But what a particular individual does is unique to them for all sorts of reasons about their previous history, about their experience of that organization that they're currently in, about their experience of relationships with other people. They, they, they bring all this to those kind of settings and what they bring is absolutely unique to them. But within that, we do know that there are certain, yeah, certain patterns, certain broad themes that we can expect from people. So, um, I mean, I, uh, uh, fun, the fundamental building block of all this is, is relationships. Um, it's the fundamental building blocks of everything we do. We are, humans are relational people. We learn how to do everything through relationships. And one of the things that we see when psychological safety is, is compromised is there's a, a breakdown in those relationships. Um, so one of the fundamentals of relationships is um, what uh, me and my colleagues uh, uh, would call mentalizing. Mentalizing is I'd say it's, it's one of those horribly technical psychology words that, that psychologists tend to use unhelpfully and here I am doing it myself but actually the idea of it is very straightforward that mentalization is just the the idea that we can understand people's behavior by understanding their mental states understanding what's going on inside their head understanding people's beliefs and current emotions and their intentions and motivations, those will explain people's behaviors. Um, the problem is when we get into high threat, highly stressed environments is that our capacity to mentalize gets switched off. So it's a kind of a rather fragile uh, ability that we have to get, and it's a guessing game. We're guessing what's going on in someone's head, which will explain the behaviors that we're seeing. And in high stress, high threat environments, what we tend to see is behaviors kind of start to look a bit unusual, a bit more challenging, a bit less helpful. But actually, if we can understand what's going on in someone else's head, if we can mentalize, then we can start to get a better understanding of what's behind their behavior and then we can do something about that. We can help them to do something about that and we can connect with them as a person better. So, so let's just, just tease open this mentalizing a little bit more because I'm thinking our listeners, you know, it might be helpful for them to, to start to be curious if people they're working with, if their ability, either their own or their peers' abilities to mentalize are appearing to be challenged and you, you said people can get more challenging less helpful are there any other behaviors that 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 you see uh, from the more from the subtle to the more yeah. sort of hard hit you know impactful yeah well there's two there's two signs that people's mentalization capacity has kind of switched off um so one is that people move to sort of a quick fix we just have to do something about this now um, and they lose the capacity to be thoughtful and creative and problem solve 
mm. um, which in any organization, the capacity to be thoughtful and to problem solve is what leads to organizations being sustainable as well as individual performance being sustainable. The, the other thing is that people move to this place of certainty. So mentalization is a, we're guessing what's going on in someone's head, but actually if we lose the capacity to mentalize, we no longer feel we're guessing, we feel we absolutely know. So if someone is showing sort of difficult behavior and we lose our capacity to mentalize, we start to, in inverted commas, know what's, the, what's behind that person's behavior. And we start to interpret it in ways that might not be true and might not be helpful. So let me give you an example from a, mm. from a football setting. Um, so really good, uh, 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 very skilled young footballers in an academy setting. Um, uh, if, if you, you know, tend to play well, but have a bad game, maybe because stuff's going on at home that adds to the already stressful environment of a, of a, a sort of a, a elite academy environment. And a young person starts to, I don't know, perform less well. Um, the, there's a tendency for the coaching staff to get very stressed in those kind of situations, understandably, because it's this is something that's really important to them. Um, and rather than thinking, let's try and understand what's going on in that young person's head. Let's try and understand what's going on for them so that we can be helpful. They move to this certainty mode, which is they're just rubbish. They used to be good and now they're rubbish. Um, and that's really unhelpful both for that young person and for the academy as a whole, because the danger is that you lose your really good players who have real potential to do well because you've written them off early because you've lost your ability to mentalize and you've gone into this concrete certainty mode, which kind of writes people off. And it tends to write off some of the more challenging athletes, let's say, who may come from some more difficult backgrounds but those are also the athletes who might actually be the best performers in the end, either because of their physical attributes or some of the characteristics that make them challenging are also exactly the characteristics that we want to really see good, enhanced, sustained performance. So, so and I guess here are some lessons for leaders in any organization about talent development in, in terms of how, I'm just thinking of the parallel of, of when people think differently, when people break out of conformity perhaps, yeah. um, how can you harness that uh, without on the one hand it being very disruptive, but on the other hand with, overly, with an overly certain approach um, sort of stamping down on it. Yeah. Um, it, we, we in Changing Minds talk about um, accept, connect and reflect. Mm -hmm. So in high performance environments, whether that's sport or business or school, frankly, um, because of the stresses that those kind of environments create, uh, they're going to lead to some sort of 
disruption. You, you can, we can expect that people will show some of the challenge that they're experiencing. So we, we shouldn't drive for a kind of perfection. We should accept that some dysfunction is inevitable because of the, the, the way humans respond to high stress environments, which are necessary for, for high performance. So accepting that that will happen, then connecting with the person uh, to try and this to, to mentalize, to try and understand better what's going on in their head, how they're experiencing the environment, how they're responding to the stress, what's leading them to behave in a particular way. Uh, and that's connecting with them, but also with people who know them well to kind of come up with a shared understanding of what's going on. And then once we've reflected on that, once we've got that understanding, then you can put that into action and try and, you know, you could, you're in a position to be helpful to that person in order to maximize their performance. Yeah, and I guess that that's some of the ways we've connected. You and I have connected in rowing is is doing just that to help. On the one hand, individual athletes respond to, at times, challenging or behaviour from from staff members. But on the other hand, helping coaching teams be as resourceful as possible with athletes. Um, uh, absolutely, and I think that's one of that, that's one of the real values that applied psychology brings that we're it's our, I guess it's our ability to sort of look in from the outside and be helpful it's a kind of, I suppose it's kind of creating a kind of bridge between well in sport the athlete and the coach um, mm. but in business it's the 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 sort of employee and the manager um, and in school it might be the the teacher and the the pupil the 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 systems are exactly the, the, the mechanisms are exactly the same. Uh, and I, I guess that what we bring as applied psychologists is a, a background knowledge of the of, of to, to help with that understanding, to help with that that connection, um, and to help see what you can do about it. Because understanding is okay, it's kind of helpful in its own right, but actually understanding without action is um, you know not so good. Yeah, and it, 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 I'm really fascinated by what you said about some degree of dysfunction is expected because these are high stress environments, high performance is being sought, there will be disruption. Yeah. The challenge is to, to help, to help people understand it um, and help people learn from it and work together around it. And I guess what it reminds me of, Duncan, is I remember working with a colleague about 20 years ago in, in Olympic sport who said to me, uh, and he was a senior coach, he said he wanted athletes who were self-sufficient. Mm. And, and I think 20 years ago, that was very much the model. And obviously, there's a real benefit to a high degree of self-sufficiency and emotional stability. Mm. But I think that that high, the high performance sport that I work in, uh, and, and that's particularly rowing and cricket, is, is much more accepting now of a range of personality characteristics because you can get some amazing performers who at some parts of their journey through life are less independent or maybe portraying different 
approaches. And I, I wonder, so I, I suppose I'm aware of this journey, this, this change in what high performance might mean, especially in terms of personality requirements to be, I, I see a greater degree of health to be more broadly welcoming. I, I, I wonder if you have any perspective on, a, on any changes or any direction of travel in that way. Uh, well, I think fundamental to this is sort of resilience. Resilience is a word that's used a, a lot and quite rightly, both in sport and uh, uh, business settings. This, uh, the I, you know, the capacity to sort of bounce back from adversity and to, you know, kind of get through really difficult situations. And the old fashioned view of resilience was that it was a personal characteristic. You know, you either, you either had grit or you didn't. Um, and that now has become a, a, a rather old fashioned view of looking at personal characteristics. And the work of people who uh, are sort of highly respected in terms of understanding resilience see that it's a kind of complex relationship between the individual and the environment that they're in. So rather than an idea that we have, we need to build resilient people, you need to teach them uh, mental skills to deal with particularly challenging situations. We've moved to one which is about building resilient environments, environments in which people's, okay, there is, people do have different capacities, personal capacities to deal with adversity and setback. But we, what we, the old fashioned view, missed out the value that the environment created, which allowed people to show their resilience um, and how the environment could sort of harness individuals resilient capacities. And I think that's been a shift that organizations have, have, have latched onto that idea that there's something that they can do about it. So mm. it's not just about selecting resilient people. And it's not just saying that people are either resilient or they're not. But as you say, sometimes people are, show resilience and sometimes they appear not to um, because of all sorts of stuff that's going on for them and the environment. What the environment can do is to make it more likely that people are resilient and the environment can be active in building people's resilience at a, a kind of at an environment or systems level. So, so what, what, what sort of things, I'm just thinking of our listeners now who are leading their own environments in their teams and their whole organizations. What sorts of approaches can you do to actually change your environment? Are, are there any principles or examples you can bring? Um, it, it's about balance. So I think it's about, again, accepting that uh, high performance systems, whether that's in sport or business, uh, are also high threat environments. Um, and threat, uh, is a motivator, but it's about too much threat and we lose our capacity to uh, perform well, too little threat and we are perhaps not motivated enough. Um, but that has to be balanced with the support within the organization. So if we're gonna expect people to work in high threat environments, high stressful environments might be a better way of putting it. 
then we also have to have systems which support that as well and give balance to that high threat, high support. Um, because the individual, well, I suppose it's also creating environments which uh, harness people's individual motivation. You know, we, we, certainly in sport, certainly in Olympic sport, the, the people who get to uh, sort of uh, performing at a Olympic, Paralympic level, they're, they're not your run-of-the-mill people. You know, these are off the scale in terms of their individual motivation in order to be able to do what they do every day. Hmm. Um, but the environment can balance that with providing good support to them. So when their high motivation meets with high threat, high stress of you know performing well, certainly when it comes up to sort of Olympic periods and certainly when it comes to dealing with the massive uncertainty that everyone's in now, mm. uh, if you don't have that kind of support in place, the sort of what, what some call the soothing systems, then you lead the people kind of um, burn out that high threat, high motivation without support and soothing is, is not sustainable. Um, so having those systems in place in order to support as well as challenge are the things that kind of um, lead to high and sustained performance. So, so, so what's happened to the Clint Eastwood figures, you know, the, the, the heroic loners, the, the, you know, the hard as nails, independent performers, whether in business or in sport, do, does that not work? Or does it not work anymore? I'm just, you know, there may be people who still correlate high performance with that as you described it old-fashioned approach but yeah I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that um well i think we kind of um when we see people who seem to be you know kind of just get through everything and um you know whatever's thrown at them they kind of manage it uh, we forget about the people who perhaps could have done as well or better but have sort of been lost because the environment hasn't supported them to perform as well as they could and it looks like the the the, the kind of the winners are those people who you know kind of just those sort of hard loners who you know nothing gets to them Last man or woman standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think the truth of it is that, you know, there, there's, there, it might look like that when we look back, but it's not like that if, you know, if you're them. And it's kind of, they, you will still see that the environment has somehow enabled them to appear to be these sort of loners who can manage everything, anything and everything. But actually, if we really unpick it, it's, it's the mix of them and the environment that they're in, which has actually led to that. And I guess it also then makes me think about the costs in those environments, in those environments where there isn't high psychological sort of safety mm. um, is, is that I, my own experience is that people who 
who are operating on the edges of that behavior are likely to cause a lot of costs to people around them, whether through being highly competitive inappropriately with, with colleagues and teammates, whether being highly critical, mm. ranging through to abusive systems. Um, so I suppose that's, uh, are there any other cost areas that, that, that come to your mind as we look at this? Well, um, for sure, we need to keep a very close eye on the, the sort of morality of high performance systems. And also, and, and I think what, what helps us do that is genuinely understanding from people about their, what, what drives their motivation. You know, mm. are they doing this because they want to, that they, for whatever reason, want to perform at the maximum of their capacity? in a way that most of us wouldn't because we would uh, uh, stop well before that point. Uh, so are they doing it because they want to or are they doing it because they need to, that something is driving them on which might be deeply problematic and uncomfortable for them, but somehow the performance, the sport or the, the sort of, you know, just working really hard in a, a business setting gives them something which um, appears beneficial for them, but actually might also be psychologically damaging to them at the same time. Mm. Um, and if people are damaged by their environment, then you're right. You know that that does impact not just on them but also the people around them. That you 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 know the signs that if people are starting to be hypercritical and hypersensitive and these are messages that we should see and try and understand and try and work out what's going on for this person so that we can it's back into the you know uh, connecting with them and reflecting on why they might be showing that kind of behavior and thinking about what we can do to if not alleviate it then turn the volume down on it a little bit uh, and I'm thinking then about leaders coming into an environment where they perceive that there are aspects of this sort of dysfunction taking place or this sort of lower psychological safety is seems to be a part of the culture that they are inheriting. Mm. Uh, you, you've mentioned, you know, in bringing in some aspect of sort of soothing behaviors, but you know, on its own, that's probably not going to cut it. I, I'm just wondering what sorts of um, approaches it might be useful for leaders to take when first faced with this sort of culture that they may be walking into. Yeah, well, I think it's, it is understanding is the first step, whereas there might be a real tendency to drive towards action. We've got to do something now. Mm -hmm but actually without an understanding as to what's leading to that difficult behavior, the action you might take might be, it might compound the behavior. You might make it worse rather than better. Um, so understanding what we would call formulating, sort of getting a story about, a coherent story about why is this individual or this group of people behaving in this way? Uh, because it's that, understanding that story 
that formulation which points us to possible solutions. So when you do get to the point of acting, you're acting, you're doing something which is likely to be helpful based on your understanding, rather than just doing something because, you know, something needs seems to need to be done right now. C can you give any examples of, of organisations, whether they are in the health, in, in, in business, in, in sport, that that have made significant changes. I realize there's a confidentiality aspect mm. to this, but I wondered if there are any examples you can give of significant shifts that that leaders have been able to create in teams that you've worked with, even if you're yeah. anonymizing in some way. Okay. Um, well, okay, let, 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 try and keep it anonymous. Um, mm. Let's say it's a sort of, uh, very high performing team sport um, and where there were lots of coaches involved and this was a very successful uh, organization club um, and a new lead coach came in and he was really concerned about how his other coaches behaved on a Monday morning, particularly after a loss at the weekend. But what he observed was the what he described to me was the coaches are kind of really ratty with each other, and for half the morning um, they can't get on and do anything because they're just sniping at each other, and that kind of creates a bad atmosphere, which he said could last the rest of the week. Mm. Um, and we just did a very simple thing, which was to. Well, we, we, we got the coaches together and we, with this idea of uh, uh, reflecting on what was, the, what was going on for them on that Monday morning. Why were they behaving? They could, all see, they could also see that the, they were behaving in a way that wasn't productive. Um, and each of them started to talk about what was behind their behaviour. So uh, for some of them, uh, the idea was that we, we, you know, they're all highly motivated people, by the way, that they, they were absolutely driven by performing as well as they could, being the best coaches they could and being the best team that they could. Um, and some of them were got really cross with the people who behaved quietly, the people who, who would do the quiet reflection on a Monday morning, the sort of more introvert thinking. They were working things out in their head. And the extroverts in the, t in the coaching team would work things out out loud. So, and they would get really cross with each other if the extrovert was talking, 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 trying to work things out for themselves to the introvert who was, couldn't think because this other person was talking, they needed to go away and work with things quietly and work things out quietly in their own heads. And, it was a very small thing that when the extroverts recognized what they were doing and how they needed to think was different from the introverts, that actually they could give each other space and come back together a little bit later on once they'd worked. So the extroverts talked to each other because that's how they thought. Yeah. The introverts went away and quietly reflected on their own and yeah. they would come back together sort of in the middle of the morning 
and they would be able to share their thinking in a calm, much more productive way. Whereas what had happened in before is that the extroverts couldn't allow the introverts to think and the extroverts were seeing the introverts as being not bothered. You're not really interested yeah. in it. Yeah. So if you were interested, you'd be just as talkative as I am and just as showing your passion. And that's what created the clash, the rattiness and the difficult behavior. But once they understood their different thinking styles, they could give each other the space they needed to do the reflection to then come together as a much more productive uh, team. And it sounds like a vivid example of the sort of inaccurate certainty of how they were interpreting mm. each other and that, that loss of mentalizing ability that you described exactly. earlier in our conversation. Exactly that. And what sort of, so, so it's some improved outcomes resulted. Look, these things are never miracles. Yes. Um, you know, they, I think people always hope they are. And we, we kind of, we look for them as, you know, uh, it, 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 these things are sort of incremental gains, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. So it didn't, did they, were they never ratty with each other again? Of course not, of course they were. <laughs> did, did the extroverts come in on a Monday morning and talk at the introverts? Of course they did, but they did it less. Yeah. And it's, it, sometimes it's just giving people more of a chance, just doing a little bit less of something or a little bit more of something that's helpful in the long run. And we're talking about sustainable performance. Yeah. It's in the long run that those things start to give you incremental gains, which are the things that over time can make an enormous difference to performance. I, yeah. And I, I strongly resonate with that sense that, that can I influence my environment? If I feel like I can, if I'm a participant in such an environment, if I feel like there, we're on a journey in the right direction, that I am, my, my concerns are being listened to, those incremental gains can really make such a positive impact on my morale, even though it's subtle. Yeah. Um, and, and that yeah. gets us back to mentalizing, because mm. what mentalizing does is if we have the experience of someone being interested in our beliefs, our thoughts, our feelings, those create better connections between people. Mm. It creates a, a, uh, an environment of trust and it's that process that can also create this sense of psychological safety because the psychological safety is about relationships. It's not about, you can't do it, an organization can't mentalize, it's people that mentalize each other. It's, people that connect with each other um, so it's the process of mentalizing which makes people feel more connected uh, and therefore feel more likely to be able to uh, be creative to take risks appropriate risks to uh, learn from their mistakes because they're in an environment with people who they feel supported by rather than people who are waiting for them to kind of trip up and make mistakes and um, just kind of jump on them if things don't go well. I, I suppose many of the organizations that I work with at the moment and that, that we in Metzana work with are, are on this journey somewhere. They've engaged with us because they want to get on this journey or maybe recontinue it. Yeah. And obviously a lot of them are grappling with COVID, with um, with working at more distance. And I, I'm just wondering about some of the advantages 
that you know organizations which are actively on this journey to improve what advantages are you seeing in in how they are responding to the challenges we're all facing right now um it's about flexibility and creativity mm-hmm. so uh, in uh, in times of great uncertainty like this there are no definite solutions that we know work you know we haven't we haven't got a blueprint for this so organizations where people are are allowed and encouraged to be creative and be flexible those are the organizations that are much more likely to find a way through this period of uncertainty whereas those organizations and, and is that well it is it's i would argue that it's psychological safety mm. that allows that environment of creativity and flexibility mm. environments that are sort of psychologically unsafe we tend to get people who behave in ways that are kind of more rigid and less flexible and more defensive and with you so you get organizations and environments which are less creative you can't find solutions possible through solutions through this really really difficult period so again i think it's the organizations that have that culture of psychological safety of connecting working at a relational level are the ones that are much more likely to be able to find ways through really difficult periods like this again it's not a certainty it's about a likelihood so you're more likely to be able to do it rather than you you definitely will because you know this is um this is a, a time of enormous disruption enormous stress and enormous impact on all of us well on that note and on i think a note of i think there's a lot of optimism in everything that you've said as well as the challenges that we're all facing is mm. is actually how much we can influence the small day-to-day ways which we approach them and the way we approach each other and so I, i'm gonna sign off there duncan and thank you very much and I, I look forward to maybe more conversations like this and continuing to work with you as ever pleasure as always william and uh, look forward to the next conversation thank you thank you <laughs>